Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa today for details. More about Audible later on in the show. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights on a Wednesday night. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. So, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tonight we have none other than M. John Harrison. Short story by him. It's going to be a little bit cut short tonight's show. For reasons being the weather. Yes, the weather has been against me today. It has actually been... I don't know if anyone noticed the kind of news over the... The England, it's been horrendous weather, rain, terrible rain, loads and loads of rain. And if anyone knows, I work for the water industry. It has been all hands to the pumps this week. It has been total work, 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 work. You know what I mean? There's been so much rain coming down and all this rain has been catchment and running into different reservoirs. And we just had a bit of a nightmare time. So... It's a little bit kind of, I've been a little bit busy and I've had to kind of slightly cut short so there will be no poetry and there will be no flash fiction, which is my deepest apologies. But we still have Amy H. Sturgis with her fantastic article and, like I say there, M. John Harrison with a fantastic short story called The East. So we'll kick straight off with our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Today I'd like to talk about one of the most important people in genre history, whose name is almost forgotten. Now this came to mind because this summer I had the good fortune to be a guest at Con Carolinas, the science fiction convention, and one of the panels on which I sat was entitled, The Best Books You've Never Heard Of. And I and my fellow panelists, including the award-winning uh, author Mike Resnick, by the way, which was a great pleasure, got to speak about uh, works that we felt had been unjustly forgotten. Now, the discussion quickly devolved, or evolved, into a discussion of the best science fiction and fantasy authors you've never heard of. And the name that came first to my lips was Frances Stevens. And now I would like to convince you that she is worth remembering, worth reading. Frances Stevens was one of the great women pioneers of science fiction and fantasy, and the first great science fiction woman writer from the United States. She was born Gertrude Mabel Barrows in 1883 in Minneapolis. She didn't have schooling past the eighth grade. After she left school, she trained as a stenographer and hoped that by doing that kind of work, she would be able to establish herself 
while she tried to become a professional illustrator, which sadly was a dream that she never fulfilled. In 1909, she married a British man, Stuart Bennett, who was both a journalist and an explorer, and they moved together to Philadelphia. But only a year later, he died in one of his expeditions, leaving Gertrude not only a young widow, but also the single parent of an infant daughter. Only six years later, tragedy found her again when her father died, leaving her to take care of her aging and ailing mother. So young Gertrude Barrows Bennett was the primary caretaker of two people and had to support them with her work and found that being a stenographer just didn't cut it. She simply couldn't survive financially. And so she decided she would reinvent herself and become a professional writer. And that she did. Calling herself Frances Stevens, and it's interesting to note here, the Frances she chose as her first name was spelled F-R-A-N-C-I-S, which is the masculine spelling of the name. She began to write fiction. Her first work uh, was the short novel The Nightmare, which appeared in All Story Weekly in 1917. It's interesting to note that it's set on an island where evolution has gone in a completely different direction. And um, the main character, who actually survives the sinking of the Lusitania by the German Navy and thus becomes uh, shipwrecked on this island... You may remember that the sinking of the Lusitania was one of the things that actually propelled um, the United States into the First World War. This story has a lot of similarities with Edgar Rice Burroughs' The Land That Time Forgot, but you should note that Edgar Rice Burroughs' The Land That Time Forgot came out in 1918, so in fact Francis Stevens' work preceded it by a full year. Her second work was The Labyrinth, which was a mystery that had a bit of a fantastical flavor to it and has been compared to Gaston Leroux's The Phantom of the Opera. Just as H.P. Lovecraft created Arkham to be the fictional alter ego of his hometown Providence, in this story, Francis Stevens created Marshall City, which was, in its way, uh, the same kind of fictional alter ego for her hometown, Minneapolis. Her short story, Friend Island, which was published in All Story Weekly in 1918, uh, is really the only work that's clearly intentionally feminist. She set it in a 22nd century world ruled by women. Her most successful short work was the novella Serapion, which was published in Argosy in 1920, which was a dark story about uh, possession by an evil supernatural spirit. Some of her other short stories include Behind the Curtain, which was published in All Story Weekly in 1918, Unseen, Unfeared, which was published in People's Favorite Magazine in 1919, and The Elf Trap, which was published in Argosy in 1919. Clearly, she was doing well for herself in the short story and novella department. But Frances Stevens made her biggest impact with her novels. Her very first novel, 
was The Citadel of Fear, which was published in 1918. It's part of the great tradition of lost world stories. In this case, forgotten Aztec city is rediscovered during World War I. H.P. Lovecraft was deeply impressed by this work, and he wrote of, of it that if it had been written by Sir Walter Scott or Ibanez, it would have been, quote, praised to the skies, underlying its amazing and thrilling scenes, wonderful and tragic allegory. He went on to say that Stevens was, quote, among the highest grade of writer. Now, if you know Lovecraft, you know he wasn't at all shy about calling work trash that he didn't think was up to snuff. And here, her very first novel, Lovecraft Gushes with Praise. Now, her next novel is probably the most important for those of us who are most interested in the history of science fiction. In 1919, she published The Heads of Cerberus. This is important for several reasons. It's one of the first modern dystopian novels. Now, of course, depending on how you define dystopian, um, the dystopian tradition could go back as far as Plato's Republic, so it's certainly not a new phenomenon. But Francis Stevens, in The Heads of Cerberus, created one of the first modern works of, uh, of dystopian literature, creating a totalitarian Philadelphia of the year 2118 that, politically and socially speaking, is really a nasty place to be. It's also important because it is one of the first works to, to introduce the science fiction concept of parallel worlds. In this case, the book has a gray dust from a silver file which transports anyone who inhales it to a different place, a parallel universe. Let me read you a bit from the back flap of the 1984 Carol and Graff edition. Francis Stevens' fast-paced, imaginative novel is probably the first science fiction work to deal with the concept of parallel worlds. Five young friends inhale the dust of purgatory, pass through the gateway of the moon, and enter a marvelous alternate earth, where time flows at a far faster pace than our own. To their horror and amazement, by stepping over the bank of the unknown, they have left their world of Philadelphia in 1917 and have entered into a mystifying and dangerous Philadelphia of 2118. How they attempt to escape from the oblivion that threatens to swallow them is an unforgettable journey into the fantastic. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Well, it is. And the fact that this book represents a first, or one of the firsts, in many ways, compounded with the fact that Stevens was doing this at a time when not only men, but certainly women, were not doing this in the field, has led to a recognition of her place in the history of the genre. For example, Sam Moskowitz, uh, the noted science fiction historian, has said that Frances Stevens, and I quote, was probably the greatest woman writer of science fantasy in the period between Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley and C.L. Moore. Just in case you're keeping track, Mary Shelley's last major work was published around, oh, 1846, and C.L. Moore didn't start publishing until the 1930s. So that makes Frances Stevens not only a pioneer, 
but one of the most important figures in roughly 90 years of genre history. Rather impressive. Perhaps her most critically acclaimed novel came in 1920 with the book Claimed. This novel was about an ancient artifact, which was in fact sacred to the god of the oceans. This artifact summons the god of the oceans to the New Jersey shore in the early 20th century. And at one point, this deity even projects a vision of lost Atlantis and how it sank. I'll read you a bit from the back flap of the 1966 Avalon Books version. What was the secret of the box, of a substance which no one could identify? What was the writing on the box, the symbols which seemed to be on whatever side one turned it, then to sink down to the middle of the box? Why did the owner of the curio shop, who had had the box for a short time, suddenly disappear with a large sum of money, then reappear, obviously insane, leading a bloodied white horse, which he had purchased for several thousand dollars? What did he mean by his ravings about the archangel? Here is one of the strangest and most compelling novels you have ever read. Now, if you're getting a serious H.P. Lovecraft vibe here, you won't be surprised that Lovecraft called the book one of the strangest and most compelling science fantasy novels you will ever read. Not slight praise. Some scholars look at Francis Stevens' impact and influence on H.P. Lovecraft's work. It's interesting, but at the time, there was a theory that Francis Stevens was the pseudonym of author A. Merritt. You may have heard of his work, such as The Moon Pool in 1919, The Metal Monster in 1920, The Face in the Abyss in 1923, Dwellers in the Mirage in 1932, etc. In fact, it seems that Stevens was an influence on Merritt as well, but certainly they were not the same people. This rumor continued on into uh, the 1950s and finally was quashed um, when one of her books, Citadel of Fear, was reprinted with a new biographical introduction that said, this is a separate person, in fact, not even the same gender, much less the same individual as A. Merritt. In the mid-1920s, Frances Stevens' mother died, and she relocated to California. Now, writing had been her means of taking care of, providing for financially, both her mother and her daughter. One of those responsibilities no longer existed. And so, remarkably, Frances Stevens wrote no more. She lived until 1948, but her publishing career ended in the mid-1920s. She had published work for less than a decade, but the work she had published had created an outstanding career for her and had received popular and critical acclaim, attention, and success. I hope some of you will be interested enough in Frances Stevens to seek out her work and read it. If you do, I think you'll find it easy to get used copies of her novels. Most were reprinted in the mid-1980s and are available in a variety of brick-and-mortar and online used bookstores. 
Luckily, her short fiction was recently compiled in an anthology published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2004, Nightmare and Other Tales of Dark Fantasy includes her short stories and novellas The Nightmare, The Labyrinth, Friend Island, Behind the Curtain, Unseen, Unfeared, The Elf Trap, Serapion, and Sunfire. And now that you've listened to my tribute to Frances Stevens, we can no longer say that she is the best author you've never heard of. Again, Amy, that is a lady I've certainly never heard of, but now I do, and I'm more the wiser and richer for it. Thank you, Amy. Thank you so much for that. So today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Audible has over 35,000 titles to choose from, to be downloaded and played back anywhere, just like Starship Sofa. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Again, go to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa for your free audiobook. Just to give you another little heads up as what is in Audible... They've got the new Audible Frontiers. In there, you've got the Harry Turtle Doves After the Downfall. This is a brand new standalone by the Master of Alternative History. This one's got a twist of fantasy as a German officer in the last days of World War II is transported to a magical world. Alan Steele's Coyote, Coyote Rising and Coyote Frontier, they've just added to this kind of Coyote universe by Alan Steele. Galaxy Blues... So there you go as well. Each month, Austin Scott Card selects one, and he selected Larry Niven's Protector, Ubik by Philip K. Dick, Starman Jones, and Dark Curse. So there are just a few that are in Audible. I hope you go over and check it out. So now we come on to the main fiction of the night, M. John Harrison's East. A little heads up on M. John Harrison. Mr. Harrison was born in Warwickshire. His first short story was published in 1966, and from 1968 to 1975, he was the literary editor of the magazine New Worlds. His books include the Viriconium sequence of fantasies, the science fiction novel Light, and the short story collection, Things That Never Happen. He is a regular fiction reviewer for the Times Literary Supplement, The Guardian, and The Daily Telegraph. His latest novel, Nova Swing, released in 2006, was awarded the Arthur C. Clarke Award in 2007 and the Philip K. Dick Award in 2008. Mr. M. John Harrison is also a keen rock climber. His novel Climbers came out in 1989, won the Boardman Tasker Prize for Mountain Literature. Narration today comes from Simon Chapman. Simon works in the information security industry, discovering vulnerabilities in computer systems. Some people call it hacking. He likes to call it misdirected creativity. When he's not being creative, he likes to collect odd and interesting things over on his blog at thecurio.co.uk. He lives in the northwest of England with his wife and two daughters. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delights presents The East by M. John Harrison I lived for some time in central London. My work kept me busy in the evenings. 
but during the day, especially the early afternoon, I had nothing better to do than sit in Soho cafes. I like Soho. I can't remember now if the bar Italia was open in those days. I know the living room wasn't. Anyway, I tend to frequent old-fashioned places with a mixed clientele. Places like Presto's, where you can still meet someone over 30, someone who wasn't in films, advertising, or comics. Someone with, or more likely without, a real job. In late 1989, at about the time of the opening up of East Berlin, I used to see around the streets and parks an old man, a bit frail, strangely dressed, clearly a foreigner in a world where there are few clear foreigners anymore. He was reluctant to talk. Sometimes he seemed reluctant even to stop walking. After some effort, I cornered him one day in Soho Square. He was sitting on a bench with some pigeons around his feet. He wasn't feeding them. They seemed agitated with pleasure anyway, bobbing and dipping and walking up and down in the sunshine. You're reluctant to talk, I said. He smiled. You would be too, he said, if you were me. When I say that he was old, I'm using the word in a special sense. At first, I put his age at sixty or seventy. Later I realised that time had less to do with it than use. I began to think of him not so much as an old man as a young one who had been used up or tired out by some enormous effort of will. The way he dressed was in itself odd. He always wore a long, very dark gabardine, unbelted and buttoned from the neck right down to his knees with large buttons of the same colour. It was tight at the shoulders and loose at the hem. The cloth was dusty and had faded, unevenly, as if at some time in his life he had stood still for very long periods in strong sunlight, so that it looked grey in one light, purple in another. He also wore a stiff black hat with a round crown and wide round brim. Both of these items had a strikingly foreign, old-fashioned air. All the time I knew him, he never seemed to shave. Despite that, his beard was rarely more than a white stubble. Strong curly white hairs sprouted out of his nose from deep in his nostrils, also from the edges of his ears. His eyes, pink-rimmed with irises of a very pale blue, were always watering. One day they gave him a look of intelligence, and you thought he might be an academic of some kind. The next, a look of cheerful cunning, and you didn't know what to think. Every so often he would take out an enormous cotton handkerchief, white with a border of blue and brown lines of different thicknesses, and blow his nose loudly on it. This never failed to attract attention, especially in the crowded patisserie Valerie. He reminded me of someone, but I could never think who. He claimed to have come from the East. So, what do you do? he said. I'm an entertainer, I said. Conjurer, look. Very impressive, he said. What do you do? He indicated Soho Square, the pigeons, the young woman in the windy sunshine. I do nothing, as you see. Drawn to one another the way a young man and an old man often are, we began to meet frequently. It was always in Soho. I introduced him to Café Latte and Zabaglioni. I found, too, that he would eat anything baked with crushed almonds. Confectionery like that reminded him of something eaten daily in the East. He couldn't successfully explain what, and I was left feeling that if I didn't understand him, the fault was mine. It was a small thing. After a while, he began to tell me the story of his escape. He always began the same way, by giving me this advice. Michael, never be a refugee. Will I have a choice? A clever answer. Someone as clever as you doesn't need to hear my story. I am sorry. Go on. I mean this. 
Never try to shove your life into a cheap suitcase at the last moment. Never try to save your books. Never wear your best overcoat. Have a light rucksack ready packed. Take it with you to the office. Take it to the homes of your lovers. Always wear tough outdoor clothes and boots. Never try to save your family. There he broke off, breathing hard and staring at me intently. One side of his lower lip trembled. Promise me that, Michael. And before he would carry on, I had to promise. Your English is good, I said one day. He smiled. Why shouldn't it be? You're a linguist, then, I said. We're all linguists in the heart, said the old man, and his blue eyes glittered like water seen from far off on a good day. His English was very good indeed. There was never any doubt about his English, but the story he told had such a skewed feel it was like a bad translation, full of innuendos just where you wanted clarity. The language he couched it in was good. It was more than good. The story itself was what needed translating. This he failed to do. Every spring, the thaw leaves black mud eighteen inches deep on top of the permanent ice. The day we came west from Zoostri, we were up to our knees in it. People from further back kept catching us. We stumbled along as best we could. They drove past in everything from post vans to horse-drawn sleds. Then, on the outskirts of Avigdor, a child run down ten minutes before we arrive. Stolen military vehicle. A little white leg was like a stick someone had driven into the mud until it broke. She looked up at us with such dumb surprise. He put his face in his hands. What could we do? Menkorad, Zetnib Norosh, the Triangle. We'd come three hundred miles. We had no morphine, no blankets, no supplies of any kind. The Vorslag people hadn't eaten for days. You could see them in the evening, trying to cook their shoes. We were conscious of our roles. I was young, he was old. I would listen while he spoke. Each time we met, the old man had a new story for the young one but he was careful not to monopolise our conversations. He drew a history from me, too. Who was I? How had I come to be what I was? He listened to my drab little tales, northern colleges, northern towns, hell, hull and Halifax, with as much interest as I had in his exotic ones. What I hate is the women with faces like buns, I tried to explain. Every one of them carrying this plastic bag with a Piero printed on it. You know what I mean? Or... Up there, it still smells of the coking plant, the buses are always late, and there's always this fucking sign on the baker's van, real bread. I mean, I asked the old man, what's that? Inverted fucking commas. Even the fucking bread calls its own existence into question. I don't know what he made of Britain through my eyes, but each of his stories further wrenched my idea of Eastern Europe. It dawned on me one day that he wasn't describing any Europe, any East, I knew. Was he using some abandoned nomenclature? For instance, when he spoke of Autotelia, perhaps he only meant Bulgaria. Just as when you say Bohemia, you're essentially talking about the place we know today, well anyway, the place we used to know, as Czechoslovakia. Encyclopedias and atlases could tell me nothing. The tiny nation-states he described had gone unrecorded. They lay curled up inside his memory, but nowhere else bereft of landscape or tradition, cultural heritage, or political and economic history. The triangle, I tried one day. I'm not sure I understand you when you say that. We were upstairs at the Maison Berteau. Despite that, the old man looked off into the distance, as if the walls were of no impediment. You said, he reminded me, that my English was perfect. Oh, it is, it is. 
His escape, the old man often said, had exhausted his reserves not just of physical but psychic energy, imagination, hope, his whole sense of himself. But in the end, I had to ask myself this. If he had come from the East, why should he have had to escape? Wasn't that the whole point? No one had to escape from there anymore. I stopped believing him. Slowly, he assumed a new definition. Just another old man, I told my friends, who had gone mad in a bedsitter in North London. This didn't make his stories any less entertaining, if entertaining is the proper word to use here. Neither did it prevent me from following him around London to see if I could discover more. At the British Museum, he studied trays of broken artefacts from vanished Polynesian cultures. At the Science Museum, he was afforded some amusement by an exhibit meant to deconstruct the phlogiston theory of burning. At the Imperial War Museum, he stood for almost an hour in front of a diorama of Mons. His face was illuminated by nostalgia. I kept a list. I still have it, although it grows more meaningless to me every year. He visited more than 40 sites of this type, including the incomplete buildings of the new British Library. He attended an opera scored by Philip Glass, during which he slept, and the Man Ray exhibition at the Serpentine Gallery. There he smiled sadly over an amazing photograph entitled Rose Salavi, 1924, as if he had once known its subject. Was Rose the proper spelling here, or a mistake of the Serpentines? Was the whole name perhaps only an alias or surrealist nom de guerre? Salavi, code for Salavi. How would one ever find out? I still puzzle over this. Had Man Ray somehow managed to reach out over the years and counter the old man's mystery with a mystery of his own? Museums, art galleries, exhibitions. These are not inexplicable locations, but how to describe the others? Abandoned cinemas in Haringey and East Finchley, the filled-in dock network between Surrey Keys and the river, railway arches in Forest Hills and Putney. He visited them all. Even less explicable were the deserted intersections of arterial roads viewed at midnight. The rain-swept forecourts of Ikea, Wicks, Do-It-All entered after closing time. At these venues he met other displaced people. They were men or women with white faces, often well-dressed but bothered by two or three winter flies. I never heard them speak. They stood in groups of two or three, apparently studying the entrance arch of the Blackwall Tunnel on the northwest corner of the Tottenham Hale one-way system. I don't know why I say apparently here, but it seems apt enough. I shadowed him for a month. Nothing was revealed. Did he know I was there? Was the very meaninglessness of his itinerary a way of telling me how little I could learn? Eventually, irritable and determined, I followed him all the way home. Well, in fact, I didn't. He lived on Anson Road, one of the wide, endless tree-lined streets that connect Tufnell Park and Holloway. An entire generation had disappeared into those streets and never came out again. They came to attend the Polytechnic and ended up staring at the peeling wallpaper above the ascot. They put money in the gas meters and payphones. They paid for or were unable to pay the rent. Answering the doorbell, they left a trail of wet footprints on the stairs from the bathroom. It was for someone else. They arrived young and quickly became middle-aged. In the end, they owned a shelf of outdated sociology texts and some albums on the verge of collectability. They had become bald men in black leather jackets, women like fat pigeons with woolen coats and very red lipstick. Motionless in the pouring rain, I watched him move to and fro behind an uncurtained third-floor window. It was three o'clock in the afternoon. 
Light from the bare bulb above his head gleamed dully on the yellowed wallpaper. He still had his hat on. If you had asked me then, I would have identified him as the perfect inhabitant of the vanished sixties bed land I've just described. It was the last time I could have claimed that. I was wrong about the old man. Perhaps I was wrong about Tufnell Park, too. About an hour later he left the house and went off towards Holloway. I watched him out of sight, then hurried up the cracked stone steps and rang doorbells until someone buzzed me in. The liner on the stairs was grey-green, the fire-retardant door of each bedsitter a starved, matte white. I let myself into the old man's room, hey presto, and looked around. It was one of three single rooms partitioned out of the original double, with about twelve feet by seven of floor space. The stuff crowded in there fell into two broad categories, that which had been provided by the landlord and that which belonged to the old man himself. Into the former category fell the single bed, but not its yellow coverlet, the baby-belling stove, but not the coffee-maker on its blackened front ring, the wardrobe with its peeling veneers, but not the short feathered stick propped up in one corner of it. Into the latter, a random collection of small objects, but not the chipped green chest of drawers he had arranged them on. An oval mirror, but not the stained sink he had positioned it above. And two or three items of clothing hanging on a hook on the back of the door. I sat on the bed for some time studying these things. I felt only faintly guilty for being in there with them, perhaps because I could make nothing of them or the life they represented. The coffee-maker seemed bulbous and misproportioned, the mirror frame featured in bas-relief what appeared to be a fight between mink. The feathers were dyed fluorescent greens and reds, or were they? One moment the items on the chest of drawers looked like the residue of a hundred days out. Trips to the seaside, trips to the country, river trips in hired boats. The next they seemed otherworldly, unreadable, impassive. A brass lizard, part of a triangular candle, a few polished stones, a tiny red tin of ointment two or three ornamental boxes, all placed carefully around a framed photograph and smelling faintly of incense. As the light went out of the air outside, they seemed to shift a little, to settle towards one another. There was a faint, objective sigh in the air, the sound that inanimate things might make if they relaxed, a smell of dust. Suddenly, I realised what the design on the yellow bed cover was intended to represent. I got to my feet quickly, and blundering out of the room, slammed the door behind me breathing as if I had run halfway down the strand after a bus. I was desperate to get out of there. Then something compelled me to go back in and break everything I could find. In the end, I was breaking perfectly ordinary things. They seemed wrong to me. I broke a birds-of-the-world tea tray, a mug with Ronald MacDonald's face. The old man vanished from Soho. Within a week I missed him. I missed the challenge of him. Also... I remembered his watery blue eyes and his trembling lip, and I wondered if I'd gone too far. About a month later, he walked into Prestos and sat down opposite me. His coat was glazed with dirt, as if he had been living in the street. He looked ill. His face was emaciated, his movements stiff, his hands had a continual slight tremor. When he spoke, I could hear his breath going effortfully in and out in the pauses between sentences. You don't look too well, I said. Can I get you something? When the waitress came, he ordered Zabaglione but had trouble with the spoon. I can't eat this, he said helplessly. To start with, it was hard to get him to say anything else. 
He kept looking at me out of the side of his eye, like a nervous horse. If he wasn't watching me, he was watching the pedestrians entering Old Compton Road. No different here, he said. Suddenly he laid his hand over mine. Michael, these people are animals. You must be so careful with them. He stared hard at me. Michael, promise me you'll be careful. I promise, I said. They seemed to relax him. He began spooning up the Zabaglione very fast and noisily. I haven't eaten, he said. I haven't dared eat. He said, Someone broke into my room. My things. I... He looked out of the window. Look, that man. It's just a man, I said. No, he... He stopped. I haven't been back there, he said. You feel violated, I said. It's not that, he said. He took his hat off and looked inside it. It's the terror of the return journey, you know? I didn't know. Despite that, he told me, I am determined to go back. Do you mean the bedsit? I asked. He stared at me. Home, he said. The terror of the journey home. Ah. He said that he could no longer get on with the Western life. That was what he called it, the Western life. He shrugged, wiped round the inside of his hat with his handkerchief. I'm going back to the east. By then, I suppose, every journey became a terror for him. As soon as he finished eating, I offered to help him along Charing Cross Road to the tube station and put him on a train. He eyed me uncertainly. I saw that he was frightened of me now, whatever he might say. Not because I'd wrecked his room. He couldn't know I'd done that. It was because I was human. He thought... Then he said, Very well, thank you. At least someone is being kind to me. It was the early evening rush hour. We walked slowly. He leaned on my arm. Despite it all, he was still interested in the West. The newest Japanese sports car or motorcycle parked at the curb like a halogen-lit sculpture would stop him dead. A bookshop window would draw him across the pavement against the grain of the crowds. Paperbacks and maps... Cheap souvenir T-shirts. He winced away from secretaries, but he wouldn't be put off the things that attracted him. Leicester Square Station was a nightmare. Tourists and schoolchildren marbled a solid pack of commuters like the fat in beef. He clung to the escalator rail. When we found his platform at last, he wavered near the edge of it, nodding morosely as the older kids kicked the younger ones and tried to push them onto the rails. I suppose the train will be crowded, he said. It was. I don't think I can get on, he said. But he did. Before it pulled away, there was one of those empty moments typical to the underground. The carriage doors remain open. Apart from some faint ticking noises, the train is silent and goes nowhere. People begin to look at one another. For perhaps a minute, the old man stared out at me from between two women in business suits and heavy eye makeup, terror in his eyes. I stared back, uncomfortably, aware that everyone was watching us. He fumbled suddenly in his coat. Take this, Michael. Please take it. He pressed into my hand something small and angular, folding my fingers round it gently with his own. At that, the doors banged shut, and the train drew away from the platform. That was the last I saw of him. When I looked down, I saw that he had given me the little framed photograph which had stood on the chest of drawers in his room, surrounded like an icon by the votive objects of his exile. 
something I had failed to break. I found it difficult to pick up my existence where it had left off. At night, I worked, drawing dyed feathers out of a topped hat. Hey, presto. By day, I could not get the old man out of my head. I was bitterly sorry to have been the cause of his despair, but could I help that now? In addition, Soho seemed empty to me without his ironies. I missed the sound of him snorting into his large handkerchief. I was bored. To get away, and perhaps as a kind of penance too, I revisited many of the sites I followed him to, haunting a street of deserted factories here, the strip of derelict land behind Sainsbury's there. I was attracted to Hackney and Wanstead, the bleak parks, the chains of reservoirs which lay like mirrors discarded northward along the Lee Valley. Winter turned to spring. In Clissold Park the wind tore the petals off the crocuses and blew them about. Male pigeons fluttered down to the paths, inflating themselves to bob and dip. The females looked up in faux surprise and walked in rather aimless arcs. It was spring, and suddenly the streets were full of haggard young men and women from Stoke Newington, made tired and anxious by their success at marriage, culture journalism and modern parenting. They looked so awkward somehow, so uncomfortable with their lot. I stared at them puzzledly all one afternoon. They gave me an idea. I went back to the old man's bedsitter. It was empty. Even the carpet had gone. All I could find of him was a diagram drawn on the floor in chalk, a permanent sense that the room had only just been vacated. I sat there in the silence. I thought to myself, So, the world is now full of people like him, people who have taken advantage of political change to infiltrate a society in which they would otherwise be easily discovered. Every lonely Soviet businessman be over here discussing kilos of this, kilos of that in a pub in Cosmo Place. Every white-faced fifteen-year-old girl in a belted black PVC jacket being sick on the central line platform at Tottenham Court Road. Kazakhstanis with cowed mothers, Kurds with political magazines, Estonians who run literary agencies from rather nice houses in Camberwell. They are all less from the East than the East. Is it possible to believe that? The photograph he had given me was no help. It had been taken in a garden darkened with laurel and close-set silver birch, a family picture centred on a very attractive black-haired woman in her mid-thirties. She wore a long jumper over jeans. Her brown eyes had the round, frank, slightly protrusive look and nervous vivacity associated with thyroid disorder. Her smile was delighted and ironic at once, the smile of a lively art student rather surprised to find herself a matron. In front of her stood two boys five and ten years old, resembling her closely about the mouth and eyes, and there, behind the three of them, with his hand on her shoulder and his face slightly out of focus, stood the old man. Younger-looking, but clearly himself. Was he her father, or were they a marriage? It was hard to say. I inclined to the former. I found myself staring as deeply into the photograph as he had stared into my face when he had said, Michael! Never become a refugee. I placed it on the floor in front of me. Towards dark, the world spun briefly. Vertigo, I thought. I thought I heard a bird call sweetly from one of the laurel bushes in the picture. I felt myself falling in towards it. I thought I heard a woman's voice exclaim, Aren't we lucky to have this? Aren't we? I stopped myself in time. Those are the words I used to myself. In time. Although what I meant by them I wasn't then entirely sure.
I went out of the bedsit and locked the door behind me. I went down into the quiet street. The room is mine now. I don't live in it. I keep it locked when I'm not there. I bought a small chest of drawers and painted it green. On it, I put a few of the things that have had meaning in my life so far. A ceramic rose brooch bought from a stall in Camden in 1986. A box of Norwegian matches. Some shells which, if you put your nose close to them, still give off the faint salt smell of the East Anglian coast. One or two things like that, set in front of the old man's photograph. Once a week, I go there and stare into his daughter's eyes until I begin to feel myself falling. In time, I tell myself. In time. There you go. What a fantastic story. Don't forget, all copyright is Mr. M. John Harrison. Please pop over to his new site. He's blogs up and running there and it is a very fascinating and information rich site again many thanks to our good friend simon chapman for a fantastic narration simon it is really appreciated so that kind of ends up this little short oral delights i hope you don't mind like say weather has been against me don't forget if you'd like to contribute and help run the starship sofa £2.50 donation regular once a month. That would be fantastic. Pop over the website. You also, if you sign up for the monthly subscription, as you know, you get the Starship Sanatorium show. And I think we're into about five shows there now. So there's a, two extra ones that I haven't actually played on the main feed. I'll probably stick one more on, you know, just to kind of tickle your fancies or a couple more, see how I go. But hopefully you will be kind enough to support this show. Just to give you a heads up for Saturday, I'm trying to get my good friend, Mr. Fred Heimbaugh, Mr. Jazz FM on, so we can do another round table. That's coming up on Saturday. So until then, my good friends, everyone, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Of that erasure procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.